Uh, This morning we will be looking at Exodus chapter 24, verses 9 through 18. That is the sermon text for today. And the New Testament reading will be Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 25. Exodus 24, 9 through 18, Hebrews 10, 1 through 25. Would you hear now the reading of God's holy word? Exodus 24, 9. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and seventy of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment which I have written for their instruction. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. And he said to the elders, Wait here for us until we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, And the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. Let us go now to Hebrews chapter 10. Verses 1 through 25, as most of you know, my custom is to try to pick a New Testament text that corresponds to the Old Testament text, and I hope that you were able to see that this New Testament text does certainly bring clarity concerning the Old Testament passage that we have just read. Hebrews 10.1 For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities... It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year after year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins? But in these sacrifices, that is, in these sacrifices of the old covenant, the old Mosaic covenant, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of Me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their heart and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is a forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened up for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So far the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. One of the things that I enjoy doing as a pastor is conducting wedding ceremonies. Weddings are such joyous occasions. They're also very significant occasions. In a wedding ceremony, a covenant is made. And in that covenant, a man and woman are joined together as one. So marriage are covenants. We must remember this. Marriage ceremonies are very joyous and significant occasions. And in our culture, it is customary to have a wedding rehearsal a day or two before the wedding ceremony itself. I don't know if you've ever been to a wedding rehearsal. Maybe you were at your own or someone else's. It's at the rehearsal that the bride and groom and all who are to be involved in the wedding ceremony go through the motions of the ceremony so that everyone has a clear understanding of what will happen on the wedding day. That is the purpose of a wedding rehearsal. Everyone goes through the motions so that they know what will happen on the wedding day. Everyone enters and stands where they are supposed to stand. The minister leads the bride and groom through the various elements of the service in a summary fashion. He shows them how the rings are to be exchanged and placed on the finger so that there's no awkwardness on the wedding day as the husband and wife stumble and stammer through the ceremony. The minister will even walk them through the exchange of vows. But the vows are not stated at the rehearsal, or at least they should not be. The rings are not placed fully upon the finger. And the bride and groom are not pronounced husband and wife, for it is a rehearsal. It is not the wedding ceremony itself. For this reason, the man and the woman leave the rehearsal as individuals and not as a married couple. The covenant of marriage will be ratified at a later date. Clearly, we are to see that the rehearsal is not the wedding. But the two things, that is to say the rehearsal and the wedding, are very much related to one another. Clearly they are. These two events, the wedding rehearsal and the wedding itself, are related events. The one is a preparation for the other. The one is a foretaste or a foreshadowing of the other. And I mention this because I do think that the relationship between a wedding rehearsal and a wedding ceremony can serve in a limited way to illustrate 
the relationship between the old covenant and new. What is the connection between the covenant that God made with ethnic Israel through Moses and the covenant that God transacted with all of his elect in every age through faith in Christ? Stated very simply, the one is a preparation for the other. Now, I should say uh, that it is possible to push this illustration too far. Uh, The old Mosaic covenant was not merely a covenant of preparation. The Lord did actually work in and through that covenant. Many who lived under that covenant did actually enjoy sweet communion with God through the means that God prescribed to them in that time. Nevertheless, this fact remains, the old Mosaic covenant was a covenant of preparation. It was a covenant that looked forward to something else, that anticipated something else. It was a forward-looking covenant. In many ways, it was a rehearsal for the new covenant, which is the covenant of grace, through which all who have ever been reconciled to God are reconciled to Him. Do you see how this illustration works? I hope it is helpful in some way to you. As you know, God's plan for the salvation of sinners is to save them through faith in Jesus the Christ and according to the terms of the new covenant, the covenant of grace, of which Christ is the mediator. It is the new covenant ratified with Christ's blood that saves. Do you hear me on this? It is the new covenant ratified with Christ's blood that saves. It is the new covenant ratified with Christ's blood that provides for the forgiveness of sins. It is through the new covenant ratified with Christ's blood that sinners are really and truly reconciled to God the Father and are invited to boldly approach His throne of grace. While the old covenant with Moses as mediator provided a type of salvation, it was earthly and not eternal. While the old covenant with Moses as mediator provided a type of salvation, it was earthly, not eternal. Israel was saved from Egyptian bondage, not from bondage to sin, Satan, and the fear of death. While the old covenant with Moses as mediator provided a type of forgiveness, it was not the kind of forgiveness that cleansed the conscience before God. No, only the flesh was cleansed by the blood of those bulls and goats. You may read again for yourself Hebrews 9 and 10 to hear about that. While the Old Covenant with Moses as mediator provided a way to access the God of heaven from on earth, it did not in and of itself open up the way to God really, truly, and eternally. Do you understand these limitations here? And if you wish to have biblical proof for these claims that I've just made, you will only need to reread the Hebrews 10 passage that was read to you just a moment ago. It is through the death and resurrection of Christ and the new covenant which He mediates, not through Moses and the old covenant which He mediated, that sinners are forgiven, have their guilt removed to the cleansing of their consciences, are perfected, and are therefore invited to confidently enter the holy places and to draw near to the God of heaven. Which mediator and which covenant provides that kind of access, we must say that it is Christ and the new covenant that He mediates. 
I say all of this by way of introduction because I think it will help us to fully appreciate the story that is told to us here concerning the making of the old Mosaic Covenant. There are important themes present in this narrative, themes that should sound very familiar to you, brothers and sisters. This story that is told here in the Old Testament should remind you of the story that is told in the New Testament, for the two stories are very related. The two events are very related. And how are they related? Well, the old one was a picture which was meant to prepare us for the new one, you see. The Old Covenant was a covenant of preparation. Think with me for a moment of all that the Lord did for Israel on earth. Think with me for a moment about all that Israel received from the Lord in an earthly way. The Lord accomplished redemption for Israel to free them from Egypt. And this pictured and prepared us for the eternal and spiritual redemption that Christ would accomplish through His death and resurrection. God then called Israel to himself at Sinai to bring them into the old Mosaic covenant to make them partakers of it. And this pictured and prepared for the calling of God to all of his elect to bring them into the new covenant to make them partakers of it through faith in Jesus the Messiah. God then gave his law to Israel. He spoke it from Sinai. He revealed it through Moses and then delivered it on tablets of stone. This pictured and prepared for the writing of the law of God on the hearts of his elect by the Spirit of God sent forth by the Son. Israel was then moved to respond to the call of God and to the proposal of the terms of the Old Covenant with these words, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They said it three times over. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. In other words, they confessed that the Lord, Yahweh, was their Lord. This anticipated the response of all of God's elect to the call of God that comes to them through the word of the gospel and by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do sinners come to partake of the blessings of the new covenant except by believing in the heart, in the risen Christ, and by confessing with the mouth that Jesus is Lord? That is how we come to be saved. That is how we come to be partakers of the new covenant. We respond to God's call to His particular and effective call upon us. By word and spirit we respond saying, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. In other words, Jesus is Lord. And lastly, remember that animal blood was applied to the people of Israel to confirm the old covenant for the purification of the flesh. This pictured and prepared for the application of the blood of Christ to all who believe upon Him, for the purification of the soul leading to a cleansed conscience before God. What I am trying to get you to see, brothers and sisters, and I think you are able to see it, is that these things that the Lord did for Israel in an earthly and fleshly way, they were not only real things and good things and powerful things, things useful for them, but they served to prepare for greater things yet to come. There was a picture embedded in them, a picture that pointed forward to the coming of Christ and to the new covenant that would be ratified in His blood. And we see that these pictures continue to emerge even as we continue now with the Exodus story. What happened after the old covenant was confirmed? Do you remember that it was confirmed in the previous passage? The blood of the covenant was sprinkled upon the people. The covenant was confirmed. Now in Exodus 24, 9, we read, Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 of, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up. This means that they went up on the mountain a bit, up from the people towards God. They went up as 
representatives of Israel. And one should not miss the significance of going up on the mountain. Going up on the mountain. There is a whole biblical theology of mountains present in the scriptures that we should probably consider in detail at some point. I would argue, brothers and sisters, that Eden was a mountain. Eden was a mountain. We see that Abraham took his son, Isaac, up on a mountain to sacrifice him there. But a substitute was provided. We see that the Lord descended upon Mount Sinai and there inaugurated the old Mosaic covenant. And and now uh, Moses, the priests, 70 of the elders representing all of Israel, what are they doing here as the old Mosaic covenant has been confirmed with them? They, They begin to go up on the mountain. This is a very... A significant moment here, going up on mountains, not always. When you hike on mountains, it has no significance, don't get me wrong. But biblically speaking, as it pertains to the, to the covenant of redemption, going up on mountains signifies an approach to the God of heaven, you see. Um, so, we are not to miss this theme. Going up on mountains, ascents up certain mountains under certain circumstances, signify an approach to the God of heaven. And surely that is the case here. God, having redeemed Israel, pay pay close attention to this. God, having redeemed Israel, having called them to Himself, having, having given them His law, and having cleansed them with blood, did then invite them to approach Him through the mediation of the priests and the representation of the elders. Do you see the the, the story? Do you see the movement here? Do you see the theme? And in verse 10 we read, And they saw the God of Israel. So as they went up on the mountain, they were given a vision of the God of Israel. They saw the God of Israel. This, brothers and sisters, is the end goal of all of the covenants that God has transacted with men. When God makes covenants with man, He offers them something greater than what they currently possess. He offers them the beatific vision. He offers them a vision of Himself, life in His presence. Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. They enjoyed His presence there in paradise, but they did not live before God in glory. No, by sinning, they fell short of the glory of God. That is what that phrase means. For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. We have not come into the presence of God's glory in heaven because of sin. Adam sinned and fell short of the glory of God and we in him. When the promise of the gospel was made to Adam and when this promise was reiterated and enshrined in the covenant that God made with Abraham and later with Moses... This was the end goal, to bring fallen sinners into the presence of God Almighty, to behold His glory, to enjoy Him, and to worship and serve Him forever. This is the end goal of all of the covenants that God has transacted with men, to bring them into His presence eternally. You think... Well, what about that Noahic covenant? Even that covenant, that covenant of common grace, has this end goal in mind. For in that covenant, God has promised to preserve the natural order of things so that 
our redemption might be accomplished and applied through the shed blood of Christ, and so we might then come into the presence of God Almighty. That was the end goal of this old Mosaic covenant, and it is very clear. After the covenant was confirmed by the sprinkling of animal blood, Israel, through the mediation of Moses and the representation of Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders, went up on the mountain, and they saw the God of Israel. This vision was given to them. But please do not miss this very important point. Israel was not brought into the presence of God Almighty to remain there eternally through the mediation of Moses. No, they were only given a glimpse or taste of His glory in this moment. That observation, brothers and sisters, is very, very important. Did the old Mosaic covenant have something to do with God's plan of redemption wherein He would redeem sinners and reconcile them to Himself to dwell in His glorious presence forever and ever? Did that old Mosaic covenant have something to do with that end goal? Yes, certainly. And this episode here where we see that Israel was given a glimpse of the glory of God in heaven proves the point. This was the end goal of the old Mosaic covenant ultimately. So certainly this is the aim. The passage makes it clear. But did Moses and the covenant he mediated get the job done? Did Moses and the covenant that he mediated get the job done? Did Moses and that old covenant take Israel into the presence of God really, truly, and eternally? No. They were only given a brief glimpse of the glory of God. They were given a glimpse of it. They saw the God of Israel for a moment. And Israel saw the God of glory for a moment, not even immediately, but through the priesthood and through the mediation of their elders. Verse 10 goes on to clarify what it was that Israel saw. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. So when the text says, and they saw the God of Israel, it does not mean that they saw God as He is. The scriptures are clear that no one has ever seen God. That is John 1.18. In fact, in Exodus 33.20, we read God's words to Moses, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. What did Moses, Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel see then? When they saw the God of Israel, they were given a glimpse of His glory as it is manifest in heaven. They saw the the floor of heaven, if you will. They saw the underside of the throne of God who is in heaven. It It looked to them like a clear, precious sapphire stone. Brothers and sisters, in the beginning, God created the heavenly realm and the earthly realm. The heavenly realm is typically invisible to us. But from time to time, God's people are given a glimpse of that realm and of the glory of God which is manifest there. And here is one of those instances. The heavenly realm was for a moment opened up to Moses, to the priests, and to the elders of Israel. And in verse 11, we read a very important little phrase, And they ate and drank. And they ate and drank. So do you get the picture? The covenant was confirmed. These representatives of Israel went up onto the mountain a bit. There they saw the glory of God. And what do they do? They have a feast before God. They eat and they drink together before 
the God of heaven. What is this about? Why did Moses and Aaron and the rest eat and drink before the God of heaven? Well, in Old Testament times, this is how covenants, let's say between kings, would be concluded. After the making of a covenant between kings, these kings would eat and drink together, signifying the peace between them, signifying their newfound alliance. And this is indeed the very thing that Israel did before God. The covenant had been confirmed. Now they eat and drink before God, signifying their their relationship. And all of this should sound very familiar to you. It should remind us of the meal that Jesus Christ the Messiah, God incarnate, ate with His disciples on the night before His crucifixion. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took a cup and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them saying, Drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Matthew 26, 26 through 20. Can you make the connection? When the old covenant was, was made, the people of Israel, through the representation of their elders and the priests, ate and drank before God. And as the new covenant was being made, Christ ate and drank with His disciples. The covenant was confirmed in, in, in this way. So you can see, I hope, that when the old covenant was put into place, it served as a kind of a picture of a greater covenant yet to come. A message was sent that God was doing something here to bring reconciliation to humanity. In the days of of Moses, He was doing something to bring this reconciliation between God and man to the world. Uh, But it anticipated the making of a greater covenant in later times when Jesus the Messiah would come. See the similarities. Also, see the differences See the differences. Compare these things and contrast them. I trust that as you do, you will see that there is an important relationship between the Old Covenant and the New. But the New Covenant is far superior, for the New Covenant does actually bring us into the presence of God Almighty. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel were given a glimpse of the glory of God in heaven. They ate and drank before Him, but the apostles communed with the incarnate Word of God when the new covenant was made. This is why John the Apostle could write, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from from His fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. Do you see the contrast that John makes in in uh, in his gospel? For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, John says. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. I think that John has these episodes in mind as he writes even his gospel to say that we have received something far greater through Jesus the Messiah, the mediator of the new covenant. Now let us return to Exodus 24 and look with me at the beginning of verse 11. There's a little remark there that we actually skipped a moment ago. The text says, And the Lord did not lay His hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Why does this need to be said? That the Lord did not lay His hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. I've already cited Exodus 33.20. 
which says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. This was the word of the Lord to Moses. Uh, We know from this passage and from others that it is a very dangerous thing to be in the presence of God, especially if you have not been cleansed to the core from your sins. And we must remember that, that many within Old Covenant Israel did not believe in the promises of the gospel. They were Israel according to the flesh only, not according to the Spirit. So these elders of Israel were given a glimpse of the the glory of, of God. Some of them likely were not even justified in His sight. We must remember that the animal blood that was sprinkled upon the people when the covenant was ratified did nothing to cleanse the conscience before God. Only only the flesh was cleansed. So in fact, the question that is answered here is a reasonable one. How could these men see the glory of God and not be consumed by Him? How could these men stand before God and eat and drink before Him and not be consumed by Him? And the answer is that God showed mercy. The Lord did not lay His hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. You know, you should probably know this. Uh, There is a debate among theologians, even within the Reformed tradition, as to whether or not we should call the Old Mosaic Covenant a covenant of works or a covenant of grace. I don't know if you've ever encountered this debate. I'm convinced, and I have taught previously, that this Old Mosaic Covenant is certainly a covenant of works. The conditional nature of it uh, seems quite clear that the principle is this if you do this then this will be the result if you obey me then you will be blessed it is a covenant that says quite clearly that the blessings of the covenant will come upon you if you obey that is the defining characteristic of a covenant of works do this and live says a covenant of works Do this and you will die, you see. I think we must call the old Mosaic covenant a covenant of works. It has parallels with that first covenant that was made with Adam in the garden. Adam's blessing under that covenant depended upon his obedience and the curses of that covenant would come upon him if he disobeyed. The old Mosaic covenant, in my opinion, is certainly a covenant of works, but those who wish to call it a covenant of grace will draw attention to passages like this one where emphasis is placed on God's graciousness to Israel. They will also draw attention to the fact that this covenant did carry within it the precious and very great promises of the gospel and that this covenant did lead in the fullness of time to the new covenant ratified in Christ's blood. Can you see their argument? They're put off by this idea that this was a covenant of works, and they say in response, but was not God merciful to Israel? Was He not patient with them? Was He not gracious to them? And we say in response to those things, yes, He was. And was not the promise of the gospel embedded within this covenant so that those who believed in the promises of the gospel were saved and truly forgiven? They had their conscience cleansed by the shed blood of Christ applied ahead of time. Yes, certainly, that also is true. And did this covenant not lead to to the new covenant? 
wherein we have the forgiveness of sins. Yes, certainly God's grace was present. We do not mean to say that this was a repeat of the covenant that God made with Adam in the garden, a strict repeat of it as if this is the covenant of works with no grace present at all. Brothers and sisters, the reality is this. Man would not be able to relate to God in any way after the fall unless God showed mercy unless he decided to restrain his full and final judgment, you see. So the grace of God is present all around us, even to this present day. Even the non-believing world enjoys something of the mercy of God. Do they not? Yes, they enjoy it under the terms of the Noahic covenant. God is merciful. He does not blot out sinful men and women immediately. And certainly we see that this was the case for Old Covenant Israel. What was it? It was a covenant of works. And within Israel, there were many who did not believe. Sometimes the nation itself grew exceedingly corrupt and wicked, and yet God withheld His judgment. He showed them this kind of of grace. We see it here, even as the elders went up onto the mountain to eat and drink before God. They saw the God of Israel, and God did not put out His hand against them. That is how we are to view this covenant, I think. A covenant of works indeed but with God's graciousness present, so that through Israel the Messiah could come in the fullness of time. Lastly, let us consider verses 12 through 18, where Moses ascends up the mountain. His ascent is described to us here in verses 12 through 18. We'll move through these verses rather quickly. Verse 12 The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone. A reference, of course, to the commandments that would be written on stone and brought down by Moses to Israel. With the law and the commandment which I have written for there, that is for Israel's instruction. So Moses is invited to come up further, all the way up onto the mountain. I told you, Notice this theme of of going up on mountains. Moses alone is invited to come all the way up. Joshua, I think, went with him a short distance. Verse 13, So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God. This man Joshua was introduced to us back in 17.9 of the book of Exodus. There he led the armies of Israel to fight. Here he ascends the mountain with Moses at least to some point. And in 40 years' time he will be the one to lead Israel into the promised land. It is hard not to see Joshua as a type of Jesus the Christ, Yahshua. Verse 14, and, it is said to the, and he said, that is Moses said to the elders, Wait for us here until we return, and behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let them go to them. So Moses delegated authority to Aaron and Hur while he was gone. This will become important later in the book as we encounter the story of the golden calf episode, which I trust you are familiar with. Verse 15, Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. Remember that God has been manifesting Himself in this cloud to Israel, even in the wilderness. This cloud covered the mountain. So Moses alone ascended the mountain of the Lord. You're to remember that. Verse 16, the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai. So Moses goes up and the glory of the Lord descends on the top of Mount Sinai and covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, 
He called to Moses out of the midst of the clouds. So here we have God relating to Moses and to all of Israel through him according to the pattern of the weekly Sabbath. Six days, Moses is on the mountain. On the seventh day, the Lord speaks, calls out to Moses. Verse 17, Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. So God manifested His glory on Sinai, and the people saw it. I think that is very significant. It was not only Moses who saw the glory of the Lord as he manifests himself as this devouring, this consuming fire. It was not only Moses who was filled with awe and a holy fear of the Lord by uh, encountering this. Uh, It was not even only the priests and the 70 elders, but all of Israel saw the glory of the Lord descend upon Mount Sinai. The people heard God's voice when the Ten Commandments were spoken. They also saw His glory. In other words, there were many, many witnesses to these things which Moses has written down for us. Verse 18, Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights for a long and complete period of time. In many ways, these verses, which I've just quickly covered for you, set the stage for what is to come in the Exodus narrative. But here is the thing that I want for you to see this morning. Moses ascended to the top of Mount Sinai when the Old Covenant was ratified, but he did not ascend into heaven. He did not ascend into heaven. Moses ascended the mountain and he was enveloped by the glory of God Almighty, but as amazing and as important as this was, he did not remain there. We know that Moses would eventually come down from this mountain to dwell in the midst of the people again who lived on earth, and there Moses would eventually die as we all die. And I want you to contrast this with Jesus Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. We must, if we are going to read the Bible rightly, And in a Christian way, we must contrast this with Jesus the Christ, the mediator of the new covenant. After accomplishing our redemption, and after cutting the new covenant, making the new covenant, and after communing with His people for 40 days in His resurrection, what did Christ do? He made an ascent of His own, did He not? He ascended where? Up to the top of Mount Sinai to remain for a time? No, He ascended into heaven. And what did He do once He ascended into heaven? We are told that He sat down. And that act of sitting down was very, very significant. For Him to sit down signified that His work was done. When He sat down, He entered into rest. When He sat down, He signified that His kingdom had been established. It had been inaugurated. This is what kings do. When they take the throne, they approach the throne, and then they sit down upon the throne. This is what Christ did, not on some earthly mountain, hmm? not on some earthly mountain, but in heaven at the Father's right hand. And there He remains and will remain until He returns to bring His people into the promised land, That is to say, the new heavens and earth. 
Moses ascended the mountain, Christ ascended into heaven, and there he remains. This doctrine of ascent is very important, brothers and sisters. Compare and contrast the old covenant with Moses as mediator and the new covenant with Christ as mediator in terms of this doctrine of ascent. As Moses, as the mediator of the old covenant, was invited to the top of Mount Sinai alone and the glory of God graciously descended upon him, he remained there for a time and then returned to the people. As mediator of the new covenant, Christ earned the right. (laughs) He earned the right to ascend not to the top of some earthly mountain, but into heaven, to the Father's right hand. In other words, He made it all the way into the presence of God Almighty, and He sat down there. He did not fall short of the glory of God, in other words, but He entered into the glory of God. He finished His work, and He sat down there to stay. And Christ did not ascend alone, mind you, like Moses did. Christ did not ascend alone like Moses did. Picture it. Israel stayed back. Even the priests and the elders of Israel stayed back, and Moses went up. Christ did not ascend alone. No, instead, He takes with Him all who are united to Him by faith. This is what Paul speaks of when he says, But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Through our union with Christ, through our spirit-wrought union with Christ, we are in fact seated with Christ now in the heavenly places. This is what the Scriptures clearly teach. In other words, Christ did not ascend the mountain of the Lord Alone or for himself, but he did so for others as a forerunner. He was the first fruits of many to come, and in fact, we even enjoy our spiritual presence in heaven with him now through faith in him. Through faith in him, we are united to him, and being united to him, we are there with him in the presence of God Almighty. We have this boldness to enter in and to come before the throne of grace. Moses, having ratified the Old Covenant with animal blood, ascended Mount Sinai on earth alone for a time. Christ, having ratified the New Covenant with His own blood, ascended into the glorious presence of God, who is enthroned in heaven, and there He remains. This He did not for Himself only, but to bring many sons and daughters to glory with Him. Brothers and sisters, I want for you to hear me say this. The Old Covenant was great. The Old Covenant was marvelous. We must never demean the old covenant. It was great because God initiated that covenant. It was great because God accomplished His purposes through it. But the new covenant is far superior. For it is through the new covenant ratified with Christ's shed blood that the forgiveness of sins is available and reconciliation with the God of glory is possible. We must not demean the Old Covenant. We must say that it was good and great and marvelous, but we must also not misinterpret the Old Testament and heap more upon it than it is intended to bear. It had a particular purpose. And as I have said to you already, it was a covenant of preparation. Let it be a covenant 
of preparation, brothers and sisters. Do not make it more than that. So let us not demean the old covenant, but let us also see that the new covenant is far superior, for it is in that covenant and through its mediator that we in fact have the forgiveness of sins. I want to conclude now with just a few brief reflections upon this text. They've been hinted at through this sermon, but I want to make them explicit now. Brothers and sisters, first of all, I would, I would urge you to consider how marvelous the accomplishment of our redemption is from the days of Adam to Christ. Consider the whole story, the whole scope of it, and see that this accomplishment of our redemption uh, is, is truly marvelous. Who accomplished our redemption? Christ alone. Uh, he accomplished our redemption, but we see that there is an entire backstory to this. There were covenants of preparation that were made before this. There were historical events that took place so as to prefigure what Christ would do. In the days of Adam, a promise was made concerning our redemption. And from that day forward, God was working. And when God worked in the days before the arrival of the Christ, He often worked in such a way to paint a picture of the redemption that was to come. And this should bring great confidence to us, brothers and sisters, concerning the truthfulness of our redemption in Christ. I've said this before. Christ did not appear out of the blue. He was not a religious guru who hiked up a mountain one day and said, I have a new idea, you see. No, instead he came in in fulfillment to promises previously made. He came in fulfillment even to historical events that took place prior that had a prophetic sort of character to them. I think this should bring great confidence to us that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. That this was not just some religious leader with a great new idea, you see. But rather this was the Messiah promised from shortly after the time of man's fall into sin. Just as a bride and groom are set at ease by the rehearsal in preparation for the wedding day, so too the hearts of those who believe in Christ are set at ease as they consider these works of God in ages past which prepared for and prefigured our full and final redemption in Christ. Two, as you contemplate the marvelous works of redemption that God did in the days of Moses, and they were indeed marvelous and ought to be seen as such, do not forget to compare them to the works of Christ. Ponder the similarities and see Christ prefigured in them, but do not forget to ponder the differences. Compare them and contrast them. As we consider the similarities and differences, we come to see that though Moses was a great servant in God's house, he was not the Son, he was not the Messiah. Jesus Christ and the covenant that he mediates are far superior to Moses in the old. And Moses himself would happily take the words of John the Baptist on his lips, who said concerning Jesus the Messiah, I must decrease and he must increase. I think John the Baptist in that moment when he said those words spoke on behalf of all of the prophets of old. I must decrease and he must increase. Uh, Indeed, that has been the purpose of all of the old covenants that were made before Christ came. They were intended to prepare. They were intended to pass away. They were intended to decrease once the Messiah and the new covenant ratified in his blood came. Thirdly, I offer this exhortation. Be very sure that you are found in 
Christ and in His covenant. For it is only through Christ that we have reconciliation with God. Be sure that you are found in Him. It will do you no good to be found in Adam. All men and women are born into Adam and into that broken covenant of works which brings only death, not eternal life. It will do you no good to be found in Adam. Adam did not ascend the mountain of the Lord. No, by his sin he only descended into sin and misery and was expelled from that garden from the presence of God's holy mountain. And it will do you no good to be found in Moses, as great as Moses was. It will do you no good to be found in him. For though Moses did did ascend the mountain of the Lord by God's grace, it was an earthly mountain only, a type of the heavenly. And through Moses, the priests and the elders of Israel were given a glimpse of heaven, but the way was not opened up to them. As I have said, Moses was a faithful servant in God's house, but he was not the Messiah. He was not the only mediator between God and man. Moses was good. The covenant that he mediated was good. And so too were the laws of that covenant. But that covenant was designed to prepare for another the new covenant in Christ's blood, so it will do you no good to be found in Moses. We must be found in Christ if we hope to be saved from our sins and to go to heaven. Only Christ, through His obedient life and sacrificial death, ascended the mountain of the Lord to remain there. He ascended to the Father and sat down. He ascended to bring many sons and daughters to glory. And how do we become sons and daughters of of God? It is through faith In Jesus the Christ, the eternal Son of God who took on flesh. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence now to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. What day is that? What day is that? It is the day of Christ's return. It is the day in which all things will be made new. It is the day in which all of the sons and daughters of God will be brought into the presence of God Almighty to enjoy His glory in the new heavens and new earth forever and ever. Thanks be to God for the Christ He has provided. Let us bow for a word of prayer. Father, we thank You for the Holy Scriptures, for the truth that they contain. They are a light to our feet. We thank You for the story of redemption that is contained within We thank you for the way that all of the scriptures hang together to tell one story with Christ at the center. I pray, O Lord, that we would see Christ, that we would savor Christ, that we would cling to him. Lord, may we all be found in him on the last day. God, I pray for those who have faith in Christ now that you would preserve them, O Lord, cause us to persevere. I pray for those who do not yet have faith in Christ, who have not yet been baptized upon profession of faith, that you would draw them, O Lord. Draw them by your word and spirit. May they see Jesus as the Lord, as the Savior, as the one mediator between God and man, and may they cling to him by faith. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.